Folks, this is screen watching. My name, it's Dan Barrett. It's been the case previously, continues to be. Uh, also, Simon Foster, I believe that's still your name? That's how you identify? Yes, it is my name, and, and yes, I'm very proud of it. Family name. Yeah, cool. Okay, well, look, Simon, before we get started on a podcast, I've got some mm. important conversation up front. Oh, boy, uh, this sounds heavy. What's going on? Now, look, I guess maybe one of the themes of the podcast, as we've been doing it all year, is the... Uh, uh, how does one say, uh, pain, the penis, the, the male oh, here member. Here we go. Yes. The schlong. It is. It's yes. central to our podcasting, I've come to understand over the years. It seems to sort of work its way to the forefront more often than not. Yeah, look, absolutely. It just picks its little head up for some reason. But Simon, <laughs> there was a ad that was released on the internet. I believe it might be like National Nude Day or something in America, like... Oh. You know, one of these fake holiday like things that they come up with. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I know. So, so anyway, there was that happening. And to note the occasion, Peloton, the bicycle that killed Mr. Big from the Sex in the City, sure. they released an ad with Christopher Maloney, who people would know from the Law and Orders. And uh, uh, he's the SVU gentleman. He's also that on... Born Criminal- Sex Machine. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the current one. I want to say it's called... Um, I don't know. I, I don't know what the he, he was. Wet Hot American Summer for those of us yeah. who had a bit of a giggle with that. Yeah, I, I like to think it was from Oz, but that's just me. I'm yep. A bit more pure with my TV references. But Fine yeah, so actor. they they had a video with him because he's a really buff dude, mm. and so they had a video of him nude, and he was just talking about how he likes to exercise, which is naked supposedly, as far as the ad's concerned. So it's wow. just him walking around like sort of barely blurred out as he's crouching and jumping and, you know, <laughs> doing all his activities. Anyway, I was watching this and the whole idea is supposed to be that in a cheeky little way, we're all giggling at, you know, what he's up to. It's really just dull and boring and it just felt so hacky and tired. And I just kind of wish that people would try a little bit harder. Like it's not really funny enough just to Twitter or something, yeah. which was a little bit scandalous back in the day. And I think the reason for that, Simon, is the internet has been a presence in all of our lives and it doesn't matter, you know, how safe you try to keep things on the internet, everybody has seen some pretty wild shit. And so when it comes yeah. to, you know, anything that used to be a little bit scandalous, it doesn't impact anymore. No. Now, anywhere you look, you know, peens are hitting you in the face. It's it's it, it's not <laughs> like it's a big surprise anymore. It is it is all over our televisions. Um, God knows it's... It's in our lives every day. So, yeah, it does seem a little bit lazy and it does seem a little bit... I mean, these are college graduates who come up with this sort of stuff. Why? What, 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 you know, these are important people on big money-earning jobs who are trying to sell their their Peloton exercise machines based on a new TV actor. That's yeah, that's it's, crazy. It's not much. And I'm like, oh, no, Puritan. I just thought it was a bit of a dull idea. But oh, here's yeah. the one thing that I think would probably still shock Yes. Okay. Uh-oh, here we how, go. How familiar are you with the internet sensation of Goetzer? <laughs> I'm not at all, which means you're going to have to describe it to me, which means it's going to throw off my train of thought for the next hour. But give it a go anyway. Okay, look, let's play the theme song for everyone else as I explain to you what's going on. This is not like TV, only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What? That's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for you. Folks, this is Screen Watching. My name is Dan Barrow. It was at the beginning of the podcast. Still is. Simon Foster, how you doing, buddy? 
Oh, look, I could be worse. I could be selling timeshare in the Caymans with Army Hammer, but I'm not. I'm here with you, Dan Barrett, and I'm having a hell of a time. I've just looked down our running sheet. Once again, we have got a packed show, despite there not being, you know, much of much significance in cinemas as we speak, and that we've got, you know, not a whole lot coming to the small screen this week. We've got plenty to talk about. Yeah, look, there's a couple of notable things happening on TV, but, like, there's no big blockbuster show in the way that we've had the last couple of months. No. No, yeah. and from my part of the world, from 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 the the film perspective, we're at a very interesting point in the in the um, American summer movie season. Uh, let me just indulge myself here very briefly. Um, we're coming off six weeks of huge box office: the Thors and the Top Guns and the Elvises and the all these films that have all the way back to Doctor Strange, which have made big, big money. But they're all franchise or sequels or, or very recognisable IP films. What we're heading into for the next six weeks are a lot of films that the industry has high hopes for. Uh, but are going to be sort of testing the waters as to whether audiences are really coming back for things other than Top Gun and Thor. They're, they're, they're just this week in the US, we have Where the Crawdad Sing, which is based on a bestseller, but it's asking young kids, young adults to come into the audience, come back for a, an original drama. Um, the comedy Pause of Fury, with which, which they're hoping will be the next Kung Fu Panda, but which is untested at this stage. Then the week after that, you've got the new Jordan Peele film, Nope, uh, the UFO story, then a bit of a shot in the arm with DC Legends of Pets. So you've got a DC movie, which isn't guaranteed anywhere, and it's animated with animals. That's always good. Brad Pitt in Bullet Train, Idris Elba in Beast. So there's some films in there that could really connect and go big, but once again, they're untested in the marketplace. So um, it's an exciting time for the US industry. Look, you rattled off a whole bunch of titles then, and a few of them I'd like to comment on because mm-hmm. some of them are just kind of a bit interesting. Sure. Uh, Crawdads, which gets released this week, the poster, like the ad that you find on like bus shelters around the place, it just seems to be a like a um, reproduction of the book cover. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I, I absolutely what, hoping that the bestseller yeah. audience will come out for this film and I'm that like, her buzz, like, Daisy but, Edgar Jones, will, will yeah. come out, will, will come along for it. But the thing is, I totally get that, you know, the book is reasonably like known around the place, but I don't think that the cover is so well known that that's an iconic thing that will draw people in. Like, it just looks so generic on a bus ad. I don't really know what's going on there. Yeah, having seen the film through the week and we'll do a full review next week, I think it's a bit of an uphill battle for where the crawd dads. She's on the cusp of stardom but isn't a star yet. Um, and the film itself is going to... I'm assuming it sticks very closely to the book because that's how it plays on the screen. But we'll see. We'll see if it opens big and if it maintains that, that sort of momentum. Yeah. Ah, uh, what else did you mention? You mentioned... Uh, nope. I think Nope, nope. has got a, a lot of buzz about it. But once again, no big stars other than the director, Jordan Peele. Daniel K. Lua has, a, has a certainly got a following. Oh, yeah. And the, the UFO legend can do with a, a, a bit of a reworking, a bit of a freshening up. So, you know, there's high hopes for that. But, but once it's again, all being, untested property. It's all being sold, though, as like the next Jordan Peele film. Like, that's the, sure. that's the draw card. Yep. And like, I think, you know, pretty wisely... Like, you know, I think it's fairly savvy. I think that they know what they're doing in terms of that. And it doesn't need to make a lot of money in order for it to do all right. So it'll do well. No, exactly. Yeah. I think I'm, what what they're, what they're worried about, and I think what everyone's looking at Bullet Train to do is to provide big, like, $250, $300 million box office receipts for an untested property, um, and they don't know if the audience post-COVID has come back to that point. Was it just Top Gun and Thor and Doctor Strange that got them out of the house, or or, or is the movie going 
bug back in everyone's system. Look, Bullet Train, I'm genuinely excited to see because I will see anything sure. with Brad Pitt on it. But also, like, I don't think it's going to do that much business. Like, it'll do okay, but, like, it's not going to be anything significant, I wouldn't imagine. I don't think he can get people to go and see a movie that doesn't have some sort of massive IP familiarity with it. I just don't think it can yeah. happen anymore. You know, it's really interesting. There's a concerted campaign by the studios at the moment. It's called In Cinemas Now. They're putting on the, or only in cinemas now or coming only to cinemas. There's a real concerted effort, a real marketing campaign to highlight the difference between what you've had to do, what you've been forced to do for the last two years and sit at home and watch TV to coming out to the movies. So see, I guess I, come guess come December, we'll, we'll know whether that's worked or not. I actually kind of feel that slogans like in cinemas only is actually detrimental to the industry. Like everyone knows that the film you want to see, like if there's a movie coming out, you think, oh, well, how do I see this? Do I find it on streaming? No, it's in a cinema. I'll go to the cinema. But I think that saying in cinemas only just kind of reminds people about the fact that they can't watch it at home and really makes them think, do I want to go to the movies as opposed to do I want to see this title? And I think the idea of do I want to go to the movies doesn't have the lure that it once did because the reality is I can go and see this unproven thing or there's 4,500 other unproven things that I've been kind of curious about pressing play on that I just haven't. Why don't I just stay at home and do one of those? And that's what they're combating. That's what they're trying to, that's what they're trying to you know, keep down, to, to put in the background. They're trying to keep the movie-going experience alive with these films and that's why these six next, next six weeks are going to be really important. Interesting little bit of trivia I believe that with the release of the Thor movie, that's the very last of the Hollywood backlog that's been sitting there. So when COVID was, you know, destroying everyone's lives and still is, but mm. while it, you know, had lockdowns everywhere and they weren't releasing big Hollywood products, they just had all these films that were in various states of production and post-production that sure. were just sitting on the shelf for a while. Thor was the very last one that had to get out there. And now it's basically fresh, sorry, quote unquote, fresh content coming out. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. I, I mentioned um, your good friend Army Hammer at the top of the show. Um, when my wife and I were in Hawaii two and a half years ago, we stumbled across the set of his film Next Goal Wins that Taika Waititi directed that Elizabeth Moss co-stars in. Um, and we were just saying it's completely disappeared. It's un, it's not spoken of. I guess it's been Sorry, buried in. What, what was this film? It's called Next Goal Wins. Um, no idea. It was directed by Taika Waititi. It, uh, it, it stars Army Hammer and co-stars uh, Elizabeth Moss and one other significant actress whose name I can't remember, maybe Kira Knightley, I can't remember. But we were literally, we, we pulled up on this little roadside village in Hawaii and there was big trucks everywhere with uh, Next Goal Win Productions written on the side and we saw the, all the uh, lights and mirrors and, she and sheets up to capture the light for the actors and they were down there on the beach doing their thing. But in the wake of Army's Fall from Grace, it's disappeared off everyone's schedule okay i guess the big question the only question really is you stumbled across the set how's craft services oh delicious you should see the amount of sugar they feed these people i don't know how they keep their darling figures i really don't i, I think the joke was it was okay but smells a little bit like foot oh. simon let's move on to the reviews yeah let's do that it's Thanks. You see, because Army Hammer... No, okay. Yeah, okay, that's what I go. You got a lot of explaining to do after this podcast to me. <laughs> hey, Simon, <laughs> let's start with you first. There's a TV series. It's based on movies, which were based on a video game, which I believe was God. based on Shakespeare. What is this? <laughs> it's called Resident Evil. Have we got clips this week? 
yeah, let me just press this button and see what happens. You know, I've got a, why is it not coming up? They said the world would end in 2036, but they were wrong. The world ended a long time ago. Umbrella, a company besieged by scandal, is now trying to reinvent itself. The Resident Evil franchise is proving harder to kill off than one of its own cannibalistic T-virus infected bad guys or girls or dogs or whatever since Capcom launched the first PlayStation video game version in 1996. It's been a blockbuster. No less than 31 versions have been released on gaming platforms, making it the most successful horror gaming series of all time. The seven live action films starring the wonderful Mila Jovovich or six of them starring Mila, have grossed over a billion dollars, making it the most successful film series based on a video game ever and this is before you add in the graphic novels the animated films and tv shows the merchandise and i shit you not live theater productions of which there have been three in japan since 2000 what now you shit me <laughs> it's true two, oh, one of them written by two australians too um so such hot property legacy ip means that netflix and their safe bet programming strategy couldn't be far behind they dipped their toes in the resident evil waters with last year's cgi series infinite darkness and have now gone all in with this new eight episode arc boldly calling itself simply resident evil suggesting this is the new and maybe defining narrative for the brand with zombies and zombie adjacent types having brought in big bucks for streamers in recent years it seems only fair that the starting point for the reanimation of the undead as legit pop culture iconography shouldn't also enjoy the spoils let's face it without resident evil there'd be no walking dead or 28 days later or world war z so i say good luck to all involved for bringing this back but there were some pretty big claims there but go on I know, but does this fresh spin on the mythology of Raccoon City and the spread of the T-virus earn its own stripes under the show running of Supernatural alumni Andrew Dabb? Now, he takes the potentially risky step of splitting his story into two distinct timelines. The first, a future step, a future set, I should say, dystopian vision where six billion infected roam the earth and freehold outposts provide shelter for the uninfected, a bit like the thing in Mad Max 2 in the middle of the desert. British actress Ella Belinsky plays Jade Wesker, a lone figure who's monitoring the herd actions of the infected until she is knocked unconscious by a monster caterpillar. Yeah, in the Resident Evil, there are monster caterpillars. You've got to see this scene. And becomes collateral for the nomads to barter with the evil Umbrella Corporation. Now, in storyline number two... Um, it's not quite so ambitious or compelling. We're back in 2022 and the teenage Jade, now played by Tamara Smart and her sister Billy, played by Sienna Ugadong, have relocated to the oh-so-white suburbia that is the pre-T-virus outbreak New Raccoon City. Their emotionally absent father is umbrella bigwig Albert Wesker, a typically compelling Lance Riddick, he's terrific in this, who is struggling to raise the two girls who struggle with their own sort of PTSD moments from the life they've left behind. So an animal rescue attempt during which Jade and Billy gain surprisingly easy access to the Umbrella Labs starts to align the two story strands. So the intercutting of the present and future plotting, I think, is handled pretty skillfully, even if the high stakes of 2036 Jade's undead infested existence and the teen beats of 2022 Jane's high school bully home life world seem initially mismatched. 
they kind of find this balance by the end of the second episode. So those in for the traditional Resident Evil thrills will also be happy to know that they're zombie dogs that turn up in episode one and that the infected are shriekers, not shufflers. That's important to us zombie fans. And Belinsky, who was so good in the recent Charlie's Angels reboot, it was like she was in a different film entirely. She's great as a hard-edged action heroine. So the narrative is certain to complicate itself over the course of the series. I'm three episodes in. Um, And I would say as a refresh of the Resident Evil mythology, the series exhibits a pretty strong pulse. There's all eight episodes on Netflix now to enjoy. Yeah, I saw that pun that you did there about the pulse. I I know. You get my jokes. I don't get your jokes. You get my jokes. I can't figure it out. This is a generational thing. (laughs) Yeah, mine's funny. Yours is not. Have you watched any of Net of, of the, the Resident Evil show yet? I saw the very first movie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, I love the movies. I never played the games, but you're a gamer, aren't you? Did you play any oh, of the games? Not really. I mean, like, no. I played the occasional game, like anything that you've got. Some people walking around. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the city from the Grand Theft Auto games. It is uh, like walk around Liberty City. Like, I do a bit of that. Right. Occasionally, yeah, okay. ride around the Old West. I occasionally, pretends to be a Mario brother. That sounds good. Uh, I enjoyed the movies. I'm a big Miller fan, so I went along and saw all the movies. Not all of them were very good. In fact, very few of them were. Um, I would say that this is a pretty healthy reworking, rehashing, rebooting of the of the the the, the IP of the property. So um, yeah, give it a go. It's worth having a look at. She's great in the lead. Yeah, look, I might get there. There's a lot of TV. There is a lot going on at the moment. Yeah. Okay, Simon, I'm going to move on. I'm going to yep. talk about a new film. It's oh, sorry, it's a TV show. That's what I do here. I'm going to talk about Bridge and Tunnel. Do me a favor. Let's toast to the graduate. (laughs) It is so good to see you guys again. To Jimmy, who's had this dream and found a way to make it work. This photographer saw one of Jimmy's photos and he gave him a job. Son, you're kind of breaking my heart a little bit. I'll be back in six months. No, you won't. Simon Foster. As I found my way into film that existed beyond the Hollywood mainstream as a teenager of, let's say, being 15 or 16 years or so, I found my way into the growing independent film movement of the day. This is the mid-90s, to you know, mm-hmm. give us some context. Uh, this was an era that delivered on a lot of really talky comedies that could be shot on a budget. Obviously, in that, you got Kevin Smith and Quentin Tarantino. But at that time, there were a lot of indie films around, and you'll remember all of them, that were made very much using the same principle. You can make a film cheap enough if you cut down the number of sets and just have a whole bunch of characters talking, a whole bunch. It was in this genre, if you want to call it that, that I found filmmakers like Whit Stillman and Noah Baumbach and Edward Burns. And that style of movie quickly fell out of favour. As a style, so much of it emulated from the teen comedies, the coming-of-age genre popularised by John Hughes in the mid-late 80s. There you had lots of characters talking openly about their thoughts and feelings, almost none of it depicted with any sense of interiority. If a character felt it, it became a conversation point on screen. Now, the 90s indie films aged up the scenarios from high schoolers to 20-somethings who were finding their way into proper adulthood, often a bit stunted. And indie filmmakers, they did get a bit more ambitious and creative a few years later. They started stretching a dollar on screen, and then digital came along a little bit after that and upended the production costs quite dramatically. So the idea of need to sit around and just yak, 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 not necessarily there for indie cinema so much. But I really miss those overly talky indie films, and I especially like the Edward Burns films. I could relate to their general default position of being about Irish Catholic characters dealing with misplaced guilt, often related to duty, to family traditions and expectations. 
Plus, I always like the cultural conflict of the characters as they struggle with their suburban Long Island lives in the shadow of being a more cos- in, in the shadow of having a more cosmopolitan life over in big fancy New York City. Decades after Edward Byrne's films had any attention paid to them whatsoever, he's got a new TV show. It's called Bridge and Tunnel. It's about six high school friends from Long Island who all went their own way after school, but they're back in town for a while and they pick up where they left off. You've got love affairs that have been interrupted by practicality with ensuing heartache that are suddenly now rekindled. You've got other characters who try to fulfill lust and love in the shadow of guilt. And across six episodes, we watch as all the characters talk their way through every nuance of their relationship, their professional hardships and ambitions, and any and every desire they may have. Largely, it's a cast of unknowns, but you do find Edward Burns, who wrote and directed every episode of the show, also on screen playing one of the parents. Now, Australian viewers will recognise Caitlin Stacey in this. Stacey had some success as a Neighbours actor, who also appeared in that Josh Thomas comedy Please Like Me, and you may have seen her in Tomorrow When the War Began. Now, in this, Stacey plays Jill. She's a wannabe fashion industry professional who struggles to be accepted at work thanks to her Long Island accent. She's got an off-again, on-again relationship with Jimmy, who's our main protagonist, He's got a successful career ahead of him as a photographer, and he's got a job, a job lined up with National Geographic that's going to keep him away from Long Island for the next six months. Away from Long Island, away from Jill. Now, the main tension in the show is whether Jill will give into love and make it work with a soon-to-be-absent Jimmy. High stakes indeed. Now, how much you enjoy the show will depend on how willing, you're, how willing you are to go with a show that is so talky, so absent in substantial emotional depth, and look, I genuinely love the movies of Ed Burns, and I found this to be a continuation of what he was doing with his first film, The Brothers McMullen, only obviously serialised. At the end of the first season, the storyline wraps up really nicely. If it was a feature film, you'd walk out of the theatre satisfied at the arcs of each of the characters as they've gone through it. But this is TV, and the first season did well enough to warrant a second season, which debuted this week. It picks up a year later with these characters, now finding some success professionally, but still just as dumb as they ever were with their interpersonal nonsense. And obviously their ties to Long Island draw them all back together, as improbable as that may be. This show is absolutely my bag, but I do sense that the show, much like the career of Edward Burns, is pretty much a relic that's only appreciated by a pretty limited audience. I hope you all love it, but I absolutely understand why when you don't. You recall such a fond period of movie going for me in the 90s when the films of Edward Burns were event pictures, not event in the way that Armageddon or or the, the blockbusters of the day were, but always guaranteed um, smart dialogue, great acting, great looking East Coast locations. The stuff he did with Boston in Brothers McMullen was, was just beautiful. Long Island. Um, uh, in Long Island, yeah, and and it, he's a he's a terrific, very idiosyncratic writer director who's, as you say, fell out of favor. All those sort of films he made fell out of favor in Hollywood. Um, like he's still sadly. been making them, yeah. Because I just thought he hasn't been making movies, but I, I checked out the IMDb every like yep. three or four years. He's got another one, but There's I haven't heard anything about them. No, they don't make their way here at all. If they do, it's on the streamers or just through some festival placements. So um, I'm keen to check this out. Big Caitlin Stacey fan. Um, Very quick story. At a a very early Nickelodeon Teen Awards at the Entertainment Centre down here in Sydney, I was able to talk with Caitlin Stacey, who was very sweet with my little daughter at the time, Madison, and I've got this wonderful photo of them together. So I'm very fond of Caitlin Stacey and try to catch whatever she's in. So that that's a big selling point for me. And if it's any kind of return to what 
Edward Burns does best and that kind of introspective writing and friendship talk and people sitting around talking about their emotions. I'm all for that because that was a great time. People, Directors like um, uh, Wayne Wang and Paul Austere and... and um, Oh, there were so many great, and you you named a couple in your review as well. They were they uh, Alison Anders. Whit Stillman's probably the one that really, yeah, yeah. Whit Stillman's Metropolitan was a great film. Um, so yeah, I'm on board. So where do we see that? I hadn't even heard of Bridge and Tunnel. No, well, this is kind of why I wanted to talk about it. So I've got a general yeah. policy where I don't talk about second seasons on the podcast. I I may reference this on, but I don't like doing the reviews. Uh, but I just kind of figured nobody saw this show. Uh, so right. it debuted about a year ago. We find it on Stan in Australia. And season two just dropped the first episode during the week. So we can check that one roll out weekly. Looking forward to that. All right. Uh, I'm going to uh, have a look at a new film. All, which is- sorry. All the episodes are about half an hour long. So it's not a huge time commitment oh. either. And you probably want so to watch not- like about two or three of them back to back. Oh, okay. So it's not even a like an hour long drama. It's more no. like a, a little piece. Well, Short and nice. sharp. Okay. Uh, in limited release now through Universal Pictures is a little film called Phantom of the Open. Okay. I did uh, Evangelicals for Trump and I did Indian American. Wait, that's not that film. <laughs> one second. Let's try this one. Sorry, I didn't tell you that I changed the order of the films we we're going to talk about. Clearly, yes. A new young man once said he was going to be somebody. Promise champagne, caviar. I'll give you champagne, caviar. You should have married him. She's a light of my life, Jean. I love her very, very much. And my sons, they love disco dancing. Where I come from, it's a small world. If you could do anything, what would you do? I don't know. The world's your oyster. What we got to lose? The Phantom of the Open is based upon the true story of one Morris Flitcroft, a factory worker who offset the anxiety of his impending retrenchment by acting on a whim. He liked the look of golf on the telly, so he filled out the entry form and somehow managed to gain a spot in the 1976 British Open golf qualifying round. Of course, having never played the game, he shot the worst round in Open history, yet became a folk hero in the process. Now, These sports underdogs type of stories certainly have their place, the best of their kind being picks like the 1979 cycling drama Breaking Away or the 1993 bobsled comedy Cool Runnings. But The Phantom of the Open isn't really like those films. Sure, it's got sport in it, the the cinematically challenging spectacle of golf, but those films identified with and seemed to actually like their heroes But The Phantom of the Open feels like a bit of a piss take, a shot at both his dippy working class dolt and the establishment he snuck one past to become a national laughing stock. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb here. Phantom of the Open is more like another film that I really hate, the 1997 Australian film The Castle, and I'll tell you why. Both base their comedy, and I quote Bunny Ears comedy, upon the premise that you have to be a bit dim to stick to your working class morals in the face of modern society, and it's a bloody hilarious miracle if by doing so you get the outcome you're hoping for. The castle turned working class Australians into idiots and then conned us into laughing along at them, and the Phantom of the Open tries to pull off the same shtick, and I didn't buy it. It's also no surprise that Phantom of the Open is written by one Simon Farnaby, whose script for 
Paddington 2 earned him a BAFTA nomination, which I'm just bewildered by. Um, in Mark Rylance's terribly mannered, vaguely condescending performance as Flitcroft, you have what is essentially a cartoon figure like Paddington trying to cope with the real world around him like Paddington and the real world deciding to laugh along at his buffoonery. Actor-director Craig Roberts uh, pumps up this Forrest Gump on the fairway story with period-appropriate add-ons, um, succumbing to the cinematic feel-good shorthand that disco hits and flared trousers provide. It's also shallow and flash in the pan as to suggest there wasn't that much to Flitcroft's achievements or, in Rylance's one-note portrayal, the man himself in the first place. Sorry, didn't like the film. Okay. Well, then. It's good. Take I've gone that. from having never heard of this movie before to suddenly just feeling I'm never going to say it. I Look... I am a little bit in the minority here. I think it's clocking in at about 80% on Rotten Tomatoes at the moment. But having looked through the the, the, the Rotten Tomatoes on, 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 on RT and looking at what the critics are saying about it, the vehemence in the, in the reviews against this film kind of tap into what I'm feeling about it as well. It just seemed, for a film that was meant to be based on a true story about a real man, it just seems so contrived and twee and cutesy as to be just terrible to my ears some might some might certainly like it now simon i'm going to talk to you about a new tv series it's called the old man are you experiencing any symptoms no i've not been experiencing any symptoms i've been feeling more anxious agitated maybe missing a few things so are we sure the big burn the cognitive tests oh yes yeah these look fine there's nothing out of the ordinary nope why would you want there to be? So, Simon, have you seen this? No, have not. Okay, this is a series that came with a huge amount of buzz behind it. People are really getting into this movie. And my overall statement, I haven't really written a review for it. I was hoping to just have a conversation with you about it. Sure. I don't okay. get it. I don't oh. get the enthusiasm for this show. Like, it's not a wow. bad show. But basically, the idea of it is that you got Jeff Bridges. He's a former CIA guy who some stuff happened and he had to go, um, what do you call it? It's like witness relocation of sorts, but within the CIA. And he's a wanted man, so he's always just like living with a target on his back. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yep. uh, in the current stage of life that he's in, uh, he's, he's an old man, titular-wise, you know, he's the old man in question. And yep. suddenly he finds that somebody's found him. So he goes on the run. He can't contact his daughter because, you know, she'll suddenly become a target as well. So he's on the run. The CIA with John Lithgow is um, a guy within the CIA. He's after him. He's got like a team of mercenaries that work for him and they're just chasing after him. The thing with the show is that's kind of interesting. And the idea of watching Jeff Bridges in a show where he's ostensibly an action star and going through that's not like uninteresting. But it kind of comes off the back of films like the John Wick series, like particularly the first one. And also maybe more specifically, there was that movie uh, called Nobody with Mm -hmm. uh, Bob Odenkirk in it. And it just kind of feels like it's treading through just so much similar water that, I don't know, like I just wasn't really getting into it that much because it kind of just felt like it was beats that I've experienced in not too decent, like distant history. Jeff Bridges like, is a big Jeff Bridges is a big pull for the small screen. Was there is there some showrunner attached to this who's known for something bigger and better? Okay, first of all, like the idea of an actor who hasn't really done TV like this before suddenly doing TV, like that is a boring idea to me at this point because we've seen mm-hmm. it everywhere. 
every show has one of these people. And we're going to talk about the Emmys in a little while. And it's just interesting to see that some of these big names that used to almost be guaranteed an Emmy weren't even nominated this year. So we'll talk about that sort of trend in a little while. But yeah, so it's Jeff Bridges and it's created by a guy named Robert Levine, who uh, I looked him up last night. He's done shows like Black Sails and he was a producer on the Human Target reboot a couple of years ago. Uh, He's a writer on C... Like you know, he's okay, done. So stuff. he's a journeyman. He's a he's a Hollywood journeyman. He's, well, he's, 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 he's. Oh, you think he's just really a creator who's you know he's done the work on you know other people's TV shows and in yep. the last few years he's had the chance to do his own shows and so yep. this is okay. him you know doing that. So not necessarily a great sort of filmography behind him, but like it's nothing embarrassing either. Like it's fine. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so, like, okay. look, there's no specific reason why I'd expect to find uh, someone like Jeff Bridges working on this show, but you know. It's perfectly okay, and all the performances are pretty strong. Like, it looks great. The pilot's directed by John Watts, who's just come off the back of the biggest movie of the year with the Spider-Man film. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you've got all that going for it, but ultimately, I don't know, the whole thing just, you know, it, it's there. Like, undercooked. Pe- people are loving the show, and it's not undercooked. It's just overly familiar to me, and I just couldn't yeah. really find my way into it. Okay. That's fair enough. There's a lot of that going on, and the points you make about the Emmys, which we'll be talking about later, are, are really interesting. I'm very keen. I'm handing that middle bit largely over to you. I'm very keen to hear what you say as our media, our TV media guru, as to as to what's coming up there. Let's I get should, through the last couple sorry. of reviews. I should say I'm pretty tucked out from talking because that Ed Burns thing, like that, was like five oh, pages. I get. Look, we were all exhausted after that. I promise you. Yeah, but I figured that if you're going to talk about an Ed Burns <laughs> film, you got to talk. This will- I did uh, Evangelicals for Trump, then I did Indian Americans for Trump, then I did Asian Pacific yeah, Americans for Trump. and then- My father, the people's president. The campaign basically was a family operation. We will make liberals cry again. I don't think you want to have the water in the picture, right? As a family, we've done 55 events in 48 hours. I'm washing my hands after giving a bunch of fist bumps, you know? My father, he's very honest. And he is who he is. And, and I think people love that, actually. I love him. I can't even get a boyfriend because I love him so much. They saw it because people showed up to their rallies. That meant they were popular. That clip is so tight that it's actually hard to get, find an exit point out of it. So I could believe it. You gave it a lot of airtime. I appreciate it. The film is unprecedented. It's on Foxtel Docos at the moment. I'm guessing that in the wake of all the horrible shit that Trump and his enablers left for us to rage over after four years in office, and especially in the last 10 weeks of his presidency, most were expecting a slightly more harsher takedown of the former president than this UK Channel 4 produced documentary series. But with the Mango Mussolini and his spawn providing unfettered access over the final weeks of the the 2020 election campaign and backing up for interviews post-January 6, in hindsight, it seems unlikely that producer Alex Holder, who keeps a very firmly stationary camera through all this documentary, was ever going to provide the powder keg moments of payback we want the media to exact upon Trump. Instead, Holder placed things slightly more understated, but ultimately no less pointed in his takedown of the first family, given the weight of analysis Trump has faced for much of the last decade, I'd say. Holder's spin is his film's least is is the film's least interesting angle on on Trump. He's a showman, far more concerned about image control than anything presidential, even pol- political. Um, he bullies and he insults and he shames. Always has. It's how he was taught to do business by his father. How he did business as a New York realtor. How he made his celebrity on The Apprentice. 
where Unprecedented earns its name is how it offers a slightly more enlightening and just as troubling insight into his children and how they feel him, how they were positioned as machinations in his run for a second term and their role in what what he perpetrated in his final days in office. Also in the mix... Uh, precisely positioned counterpoints by legal and constitutional experts, journalists who have followed the Trump family fortunes for decades, and in the series' final moments, a very pensive former Vice President Mike Pence as well. Ultimately, unprecedented is not the revelatory expose or overdue get even we are all still waiting for, and hopefully that'll be the January 6th committee hearings. Um, That doesn't necessarily make it bad television. It just makes it a fairly minor kind of production when we were hoping for something major. Yeah, look, I don't... Sorry, I was on mute. Look, I don't understand why I'd actually sit down and watch this, to be completely honest. Like, I kind of feel that I spent four to five years of just overdosing on everything about Trump, and none of the gotchas during that entire time ever played out to anything. And from all I hear about this documentary, like, there's not really a whole lot of shop to it, so... Yeah, look, it's it's. I, I'm the same. As soon as I heard his voice and saw his image come back on the screen, I had this little sort of PTSD moment where I <laughs> realised I'd been bludgeoned by so much Trump in the last four years. I wondered a little bit as to why I was watching it. I guess my interest is in a in a broader sense just American politics, which I'm I'm really interested in. Um, so from that point of view, I wanted to see how it unpacked the last sort of decade or so of Trump's. Um, profile but yeah it, everything you've heard is also very true it's it's a fairly minor work when we, we when we want something bigger and, and tougher yeah look i just don't think you're gonna get it okay so simon i'm gonna talk about something it's not really a review like at all really uh it's a different type of written work i'll explain what it is in a moment oh look, right. uh, i'm gonna play some like a clip and then we'll just come right into it. i don't think i need to explain what this is people will recognize it Okay, so this is my little thing I've written up here. It's called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge or Cowabunga Dudes Let's Have a Pizza Party, an essay by Dan Barra, aged nine-ish. Back in 1989, the biggest cultural event to ever to be experienced by mankind as a collective took place. It was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Mania exploded in Australia. There was a hugely popular cartoon. There were toys. There were t-shirts. There were the comics. There was a whole lot going on, but it was mostly driven by the cartoon. Damn, that show was entertaining. It had that theme song. They had those fun turtles. Raphael was so sarcastic. I loved him. Love him. Still... Simon, what was different about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles release? And uh, like, sorry, what was different about the Ninja Turtles release to previous zeitgeisty kid shows like He-Man or Transformers was not only did it have a moral panic element to it, with parents concerned about their kids emulating ninjas. Don't forget, they became hero turtles in the UK. But the show debuted at the same time as another cultural force was finding a home in lounge rooms: the Nintendo Entertainment System. This was the first one of those big cartoon efforts to sell merchandise that are pr- had a proper in-home interactive element. And as with all marketing tie-in efforts, there was a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle video game. Actually, at first there were two. There was the arcade game, which let you play four players at once, a cooperative game where you and three mates could play as a turtle, and sorry to any loser friend that got stuck playing Leonardo. This was at Time Zone and it absolutely ruled. 
but there was also the Nintendo game, which I came to love, but was mostly considered a huge disappointment compared to the arcade machine. Talk to any kid who was about 9 or 10 back then, and they will tell you that the NES game is one of the biggest cultural disappointments of their lives. Playing the NES game was soul-crushing. Like, it's fine, but everybody, everybody, Simon, they flew like Icarus too close to the sun with that perfect arcade game. And the fact that you couldn't play that at home, oh, Simon, it's legitimately a cultural wound that cut deep, and it still hurts to this day. Which is why the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle video game Shredder's Revenge is such a noteworthy title. It corrects the injustice of days of old. This is a game that's hired the voice cast of the original TV show. It's included characters from across the comics, the live action movies and other turtle media. But most importantly, it's a co-op game that acts as a de facto sequel to the arcade game. Finally in my home, Simon. It's stylized like the game that we all played in Time Zone and lets you play with five of your friends. And again, sorry to whichever loser friend is stuck playing Leonardo. Is the game great? No. But it's pretty fun as it presses every single nostalgia button you want. But is it essentially no more sophisticated than a sideways scroller from 1989? Absolutely. It is very generic. So this game is probably, I guess, maybe best considered good, moderately good at best. But it does write the greatest cultural injustice that mankind will ever experience. And I give this game 10 stars, two thumbs up. In summary, I love being a total. Wow. And here I was concerned that this segment of the review podcast was going to be irrelevant. But no, you've made it somehow um, crucial commentary for the, uh, what are you, what are you, Gen Y or something? I don't even know what you are. I don't for, know, it changes your, every week. For your, for your age group. Um, not a turtle person, never been a turtle person. Well, you're out of the, the demo. Move. Yeah, exactly. I was an adult, yeah. and that's what sort of changed things up for me. So um, great. Sounds like, so have you, you've played this beginning to end? Okay, so I haven't played it beginning to end, but I've got a pretty chunk, good chunk of the way through. So okay. my problem is I've gotten a little bit older, like all the Turtle fans out there. Mm. And so I sit down and I watch a bit of TV at like 8.30, 9, 9.30, and then I start to fade a little bit. And by yeah. about 9.45, I'm snoozing my way through the old man. I'm like a couple of episodes in. I'm like, well, I need to rewind. What's going on here? I don't understand. <laughs> and so I'll go and do that. And then I'll like keep rewinding and get through an hour TV program in about four hours. I keep falling asleep and waking up and backtracking and getting through that. Then I realize it's about 12.30. I should go to bed. But... I sat, up, I sat up one night and I thought, you know what, instead of trying to watch a TV show and just falling asleep and that pattern happening, I'm going to play a sure. little video game that'll keep me awake for like, I'll play it for half an hour, 40 minutes. Three mm. hours later, I'm still just having a great time going wow. through the computer animated environs of New York City, eating pizza, fighting the Foot Clan, taking down <laughs> Baxter Stockman. Okay, well, it's out there. Is this, this is, uh, when's this available in Australia? Uh, well, I how have you, look, here's the thing. So I've been busy. Like, I'm a family man now. Like, I've got time yeah. for such trivialities, except apparently I do. Uh, but, like, I didn't really know much about it other than the fact I had a couple of friends who were like, oh, I just spent my entire weekend with my partner playing the Ninja Turtles game. I'm like, okay, well, good on you guys. But I thought, well, I should probably check this out myself downloaded it through the Switch, so I was able to play that on the Nintendo Switch, and that was fine. But if you mm. want to buy it in physical media, the actual discs aren't available in stores for another couple of weeks, but you can get it digitally online. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge is the last of our review segment. You're right, you did make something of that. I doubted you would, but that was a really interesting essay from <laughs> young Dan Barrett. Age nine. Age nine. <laughs> uh, and I think you'll find my essay had a title... And whichever title you want, I reckon the better one is Cowabunga Dudes, Let's Have a Pizza Party.
Nice one. All right. Um, very quickly, what else have we been watching? I was watching Rachel. a show on Disney. Hey? Sorry, no, go on. I was watching on Disney Plus a movie called The Princess, which for a while there was kind of a big deal when it was a 20th Century Fox property. It was going to be going to cinemas and trying to create a a John Wick-style show for the young uh, girl audience. This is about a princess stuck in a tower who's got to make her way downstairs to save her family from the evil prince who once wanted to marry her but who she now wants to kill. It is extraordinarily bloody. Playing the princess is Joey King from the Netflix Kissing Booth TV series series um who they thought yeah so movies yeah who they thought was going to watch this i'm not sure because while it's all princessy type of stuff it also features some really just john wick style violence so this was a big surprise um i'm I'm also surprised it's got some good reviews out of the u.s that's probably why i had a look at it but it's a very tinny looking show um maybe it will sit okay with some of the older teenage girls out there but parents be careful as with a lot of things on Disney Plus, just because it's on Disney Plus doesn't, and it's called The Princess, doesn't mean it's for a family audience. This is very much sort of a, a sixteen or seventeen-year-old plus movie. Okay, uh, I want to talk to you about a show called Sky Med, which I'd watched during the week. This is mm-hmm. a Canadian series. Uh, it's made for CBC in Canada. Yeah, what's it a boot? Well, Paramount. I see what you did there. Uh, Paramount mm-hmm. Plus has it here in Australia, and. I sat down and the plan was I was going to do a review of this one. And I actually wrote down like most of a review, but then like the old adage came to mind and I thought, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. So I will <laughs> say that if you enjoyed TV shows like RFDS, this is like the Canadian version of that. It's a okay. plane that takes medical professionals around Canada to patch up people in regional areas that, you know, need patching up. It's about the loves, the romances, the, you know, um, issues of the people who fly the friendly skies of Canada. Oh God, it's so terrible, Simon. It's really just garbage TV. <laughs> does it have? Does it at least have production quality? Because there's very few countries in the world that look beautiful on film like Canada does. Does it? Is it? Is it made in a way that exploits the location the way Flying Doctors did back in the day, or is it really just tinny through and through? I'll say, like, it's got the woodlands of Canada, and it looks gorgeous, absolutely nice. gorgeous, Simon. But man, Good. the show—it's just soapy nonsense. Okay. Yeah, it's Sky Med. Best not watched on Paramount Plus. Hmm, correct. Sting me, baby. Uh, I probably need to get to the Sting page, don't I? Here's the problem. When I okay, let's do it. Me like searching for the Sting took longer than the Sting. Simon, let's talk about the Emmy Awards, can we? Yes, I, I'm very keen to hear what you say. Cause, and let me just read what Dan put in our running sheet. What does the Emmy noms? That's terrible English. Tell us about the state of streaming and TV in 2022. Dan Barrett, the floor well, is yours. It's all because I'm very much about like the industry lingo. So yeah, I refer I to things tell. like noms and you know gongs and whatnot. Sn- uh, 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 snubs and surprises. Yeah, snubs and surprises. I kind of hate the word snubs because. Like, what even is a snub, really? I mean, maybe Julia Roberts could be considered a snub for Gaslit. Yeah, maybe she could. Maybe she should. nominated. So what does it tell us about the state of streaming and TV in 2022? So look, top level, this is what it tells us. I'm going to give, like, the blanket statement. The blanket statement is it tells us that people who work and, like, operate in Hollywood, people who are voters, people who are members of the Academy who can uh, vote for the Emmys, it tells me that their taste is just as generic as everybody that, you know 
you and I and other people that are listening to this podcast right now, like if you went into any workplace and talked to any of your colleagues about what they've been watching recently, it's exactly the same stuff as they're all nominating. Like it's not different. Sure. Like, you know, for best drama, they've got Better Call Saul, Euphoria, Ozark, Severance, Squid Game, Stranger Things, Succession, Yellow Jackets. Like these are all shows that people have heard discussed in their offices across the world. Well, you know, yep. nothing like original there. Uh, best comedy, there's shows like Barry, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Hacks, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Only Murders in the Building, Ted Lasso, What We Do in the Shadows, Abbott Elementary. Again, just like just widely consensus shows that, you know, nothing's upsetting the boat. Uh, limited series, Dope Sick, The Dropout, uh, Inventing Anna, Pam and Tommy, The White Lotus. Again, just all stuff we've been watching. All the shows we watch, but... Yeah. There is a there is a, a notable omission here, and I and I, and I know that you, I, I I'm expecting you to jump all over this. Yellowstone has mm. been largely left asunder by the Emmy voters. Okay, so this is going to be my sub thing as I start getting into a little bit deeper about what it tells us. Okay, so I think it can also tell us the fact that Yellowstone, which is a very popular TV show. And yes. keep in mind as well that the Emmy Awards do tend to reward like popular things. Like it is mainstream consensus picks. Mm. And so Yellowstone is very widely viewed. However, maybe not as widely viewed and celebrated on the coasts as it is maybe in middle America. And so what it tells us is that the people voting on the Emmys very much vote in line with their cultural biases and are snubbing things like the Yellowstone. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I can't argue with that. That's exactly how it felt when the nomination started to drop and there was no Costner and no Taylor, not Taylor Hackford, what's his no, name? Taylor, Taylor Sheridan. Sheridan. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, it, it felt like that one of the best-reviewed, most-watched shows of the year didn't sit well with the lefty, liberal, pinko tree-huggers of on the East and West Coast. Yeah. And look, I mean, you and I would pretty much, you know, feel pretty much at home with sad lefty pinko tree huggers. Absolutely. But at the same time, I'd probably be giving Yellowstone a bit of a look as well. Yeah. Is there a, a backup argument as well? Is something else that should have been nominated? Well, 1883 was the other one that was everyone was talking I mean, about. That 1883, it was, it was, I think, absolutely deserves to be in this conversation, maybe more so than Yellowstone. Yeah, I think exactly. artistically it was a lot stronger. But yeah, you know, good luck finding that, any of that in here. That's crazy. Is that just because the platform it's streaming on maybe isn't as established or as... I oh, look, I mean, it's not true. Param- Paramount Plus has been established pretty well. Yeah, that's true. And yeah. Yellowstone doesn't exist on Paramount Plus in the US. It's actually on the Paramount Network, which is just a cable channel. Yep. Yeah, but like, there's, there's no reason why that should necessarily be blocking it. It's just purely it doesn't necessarily align with the conversations that they're having with their peers, and so it just doesn't turn up. Now, something that I thought was a bit interesting... Oh, sorry, and another thing that got overlooked is, like, anything horror. So, like, Midnight Mass, which was one of my favourite shows of the last oh, year. of course. Yeah. Absolutely deserved a look in here. Didn't get it. Station Eleven, which is another genre sort of a thing, which is a bit more niche. Uh, that sure. deserved at least nominations for stars Himish Patel and Mackenzie Davis. Neither of them got a look in. Uh, I think it was great it, that uh, young ingenue Barack Obama got a nomination for narrating <laughs> Our Great National Parks because I think that's probably the shot in the arm that his career needs. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Dude, it, it, you said this at the start of the podcast seven hours ago that there is just <laughs> a tidal wave of content out there that 
you know, why go out and see these movies when there's 45 different options you can watch at home? Is that impacting these films come Emmy time? Should there be, should every category have 10 nominees just to capture all the the potential winners and, and great shows for the year? Look, there is talk about that sort of thing, but what I think is maybe more necessary is that when Oscar, or sorry, when TV Emmy Award uh, nominations are going out, maybe just have more of a uh, requirement that people watch a brighter, sw- broader swath of the things that are being like nominated. Like, so I mean, obviously, people have just nominated things that have won in the past. So, like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, like you know, the production quality on the most recent season was perfectly good, but wasn't really mm. as spectacular as we've seen previously. There was an amazing sequence in the season finale that is probably worth noting for technical achievement, but. Broadly, it's not like that show is really reinventing the wheel or doing anything better than most other shows sort of of the moment. And look, I love Maisel, but I think the time for it to be nominated in this way is, you know, come and gone. Uh, Overlooking like a lot of the Apple TV shows, I think is a massive um, issue here. Although, although with, with, you know, with respect, Severance did get 14 nominations and that's a big plus for this sci-fi tin show to, to get a look in. But that was like one of the buzzier shows of the year. Sure. Yeah, uh, Ted Lasso as well. You know that's been nominated through the comedy comedy categories, and mm. I'd be pretty surprised if like the only thing that's going to beat it is only murders in the building, and I reckon that's probably the lock for it. But Ted Lasso has got to be a strong contender there. Is it just down to bad luck and so many nominees in the category that Selena don't, Gomez didn't get a look in? Uh, I don't really understand what the deal is with that one, but also. I'll be honest, I don't actually really care for her performance in that at all. <gasps> okay. Well, this I which brings to an end our podcast. I'm really very surprised by that. I am great to see the I am pleased to see that the greats acting duo of Elle Fanning and Nicholas Holt got a look in. I'm surprised that didn't get a bit more love around other categories as well. But these are just my favourites that are coming up now. But um Yeah. Yeah. Uh what else is I gonna highlight? I want us to have a conversation about Squid Game. Yes, actually, sorry, okay. two shows I want to talk about. The White Lotus. So what you're going to find in there is that almost all the actors from The White Lotus got nominated across most of the categories. Boy, did they ever, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but what that probably means is that it's just going to split the vote for most of them. So I wouldn't expect to see a lot of love there. But I reckon Alexandra Daddario, I reckon she was a bit of a favourite from that. And I think she'll probably get a nom. Was it, and Murray Bartlett in the male category, he yeah, was really I, the breakout star of I, White Lotus. I think well, he's a he? strong contender as well. Yeah. yeah. I think he'd be a hard name to go past in terms of that list and not take it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but I was going to talk about Parasite and I uh, sorry, not Parasite, uh, Squid Game. Sorry, Parasite factors into this conversation. Okay. So both obviously, you know, South Korean uh, productions. Parasite was able to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards. But I yes. don't think we could talk about Squid Game having that same possibility. And the reason no, for really? that- Yep. The reason for that speaks to what the Emmys vote for, like the Emmy, uh, you know- voting body. body they vote yeah. they vote for jobs so it's very much these are, these are industry awards and most mm. of the people in the voting body for this are industry oh. professionals squid game overseas international production it's the first time a foreign language drama has been nominated in the foreign lang- in the best drama category yes it is okay yes. but it didn't provide any jobs to hollywood so i reckon there's a very good chance that when people sit down to actually take care of the voting there, they're not going to end up in a, like awarding it. Instead, they'll probably just go for something which is, I mean, I would actually say better. I, look, I'm not a huge fan of Squid Game. I think that it's fine, 
But, you know, I mean, I've seen, you know, countless other media that has the exact same story in various other ways. Like, I've seen Battle Royale before, for example. Like, you know, it's a good game. It's got a faint veneer of social commentary over the top of it in the way that uh, Battle Royale is more a parody of soap opera romantic entanglements of teenagers. But mm. ultimately, I don't know. I don't think that the commentary about financial uh, wealth and equity was necessarily uh, as well constructed as it could have been in that. So I, I would say sorry, when it comes on, yep. to other nominations, I'd be looking at like Succession's probably the most likely winner there. Sure. Better Call Saul. I mean, Severance, if you want to look at like an up-and-comer. Severance has got some really sort of pointed things to say about work-life balance and the way that technology is playing a role uh, to disrupt many elements of our lives. And it feels so much more vital a conversation than what Squid Game has to offer. Um, is Stranger Things... What are your thoughts on it riding the wave? I mean, it's it'll be nominated. Like it is nominated. I doubt it's going to win anything. Uh, I think it just seems to be at a point where it's like the, the the voting would have come to an end. The winners would have been decided at a point when when Stranger Things was right at its, at its sort of peak. I, mean, I think that know, gets publicity nomination, campaign. but I don't think it gets it a win. Okay. All yeah. Right. Cool. Uh, someone who should have been nominated and I think probably could have won if she had been would be Sadie Sink. Yes. So uh, she's the girl that plays, uh, gosh, what's her name? The red-haired young Max. girl. Max. Yep, yeah. Max. Like, of anyone in that show, I think she's the standout at the moment, and she just wasn't really, yeah, even a consideration apparently. All right. Okay. So is that all you've got to say about this year's Emmys? We'll look at it more, I guess, as the, the ceremony comes around and see which ones are shaping as the favourites. But can, um, can, I, can I leave with one last thing? And absolutely. this will impact upon you as a movie guy. You're not leaving. We're only a third of the way through the podcast. So oh, no, I'm, never, we, I'm leaving. This is me done. Okay. <laughs> As we exit this segment, I just want to talk about the best television movie category. Uh-huh. Okay. So think about like the last year of movies coming out. Like this is COVID times. So yep. there were a lot of movies that got nominated for Academy Awards that came out day and date on streaming services. So to my mind, as a viewer, these should be eligible for the Emmy Awards. So I'm talking about movies like Coda, which I believe won Best Picture. And Apple TV Plus, you know, it came out on, stri- on streaming. It was there for that. Don't Look Up, which is a Netflix production. Dune came out mm-hmm. day and date on HBO Max. King Richard's are the same. The Power of the Dog, another Netflix production. But here's what was nominated this year for the Best Television Movie category. You've got Chip and mm-hmm. Dale Rescue Rangers, Ray Donovan the Movie, Res- uh, was it Reno 911, The Hunt for QAnon, the Survivor and Zoe's Extraordinary Christmas. Wow. Doesn't that category seem completely redundant and ridiculous? Like, I understand why those other movies weren't nominated because they want to get their Academy Awards and you can't nominate those movies for an Academy Award if they've been nominated as TV movies over at the Emmys. Like, that's not going to happen. But even so, like, as a viewer, you look at all these movies that debuted on your streaming services and then you wonder why they aren't being nominated as the best TV movie because they absolutely are TV movies if they've debuted on your TV. Uh, you're pulling a... Uh, we're not going to get into this because I disagree wholeheartedly. They're films that are made for theatrical distribution. No, no, Wait, and we're forced into a... Uh, and were forced into a, um, a distribution model that didn't suit their original strategy, no, 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 original no. production. Those films were greenlit by Netflix. 
we're talking about don't look up and we're talking about and a couple of other titles we're not dog. talking about dune or we're not talking about no, i'm talking about don't look up and the power of the dog both movies yep. commissioned by netflix from the from the get-go they were made to be on a streaming service to be watched in tv on tvs i would also argue that they were made from the get-go to secure those stream that that streamer academy award nominations it was yeah. never the intention it was never the intention to I know, position but I'm those as, as a, as a viewer, you look at these saying, well, these have been, these debuted on my streaming services, on my TV, so therefore, why are they not TV movies? Because they are. Well, uh, look, well, they debuted in cinemas to no, qualify they didn't. for the Oscars. Oh, no, no, not, not in the last year. They changed the rules in the last two years because cinemas weren't actually able to like, accommodate that. Okay, so it's yeah, it's it's a very murky water. I, I'm not disagreeing no, no, with you. I'm not saying in instances like Power of the in instances. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In instances like Power of the Dog and Don't Look Up, and it may never be the same again. And it wasn't the same prior to to the last couple of years. But yeah, in those instances, you you, you have a, a, a from, very fair argument from a viewer perspective. It's actually irrelevant entirely what the original distribution strategy was for a movie, what the Academy Awards are interested in doing, that's irrelevant. Yep. From a viewer's perspective, these are movies that debuted on that day in your television lounge rooms. Why are they therefore not eligible within this category? I'm saying the category makes no sense anymore because they're working to the industry's uh, game as opposed to common sense. Why then did Netflix put them forward as Oscar contenders not emmy contenders because there's a lot more credibility to be able to talk about the fact that you have all these oscar nominations than you do an emmy nomination like it's a fancy reward sure. yeah yeah okay. no don't disagree with that you're absolutely right from a viewer perspective they were they were in their living rooms much more than they were ever considered cinema releases you're absolutely right yeah i mean more people watch those in our living rooms than ever saw it in the cinema oh for sure mm. for sure although i mean that's probably the oh. case with all movies isn't it really in the long run no here we go. Now you're just no, but like in the long run, because once you consider home oh, video, in the long and, yeah. yeah. Remember the good old days when something would be in cinemas for like twelve months, and then if you didn't catch it at the cinemas, you weren't you wouldn't see it. I was playing. Sorry, while you were doing one of your reviews, I was playing my favorite online game now, which is called <laughs> Box Office Mega, which is Box Office Me Ga. You got to check yep. this out. I sent it to you, and you were nonplussed about it. I but was. Yeah. For those unfamiliar with this, basically, it's a daily box office video uh, like daily box office mobile game you just go to this website and they give you five films from a specific weekend so today's one was the weekend of november 16 1990 and as you have to try to work out what the movies were based on the box office they had and i'll let you use some points to get the director and three actors or you can get the tagline or box office figures like there's can i have a guess okay but anyway i, I was just I, gonna say the first one okay on that weekend, made $17,081,997. Okay, and when I think about this movie, like this was the biggest movie of 1990 by like a long mile, but it amazes mm -hmm. me that in an opening weekend it made so little, but it just talks about the changing nature of how a film can play for months on end and be able to rack up the box office that Home Alone did. Was that Ghost? No, it's called Home Alone, which I just said out loud. Oh, the movie Home Alone. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, sorry yeah. okay. Uh, Ghost that week yeah. was actually a contender. So Ghost was the fifth highest grossing film that week. And that's yeah. a film that made $190 million in its uh, run up to that point and, and $3 million and that week. And stayed number one for a week. Yeah. Um, but okay, you probably can, also can had... I, 
Can you I give probably you this also one? have Dances with Wolves in there? No. Okay. Okay. Can I give you this one? This is a movie, and I'll go in order of like the bits of um, like the buttons I press in order to get some clues. Okay. Yep. So the gross for this film, and it must be in a first week release, uh, was three million four hundred ninety nine thousand eight hundred nineteen. Okay. Yeah. It's a Walt Disney movie. The director was Handel Batoy and Mike Gabriel. Starred Bob Newhart. Uh, passed away, was it? No, Bob Newhart? Yeah. First Family? Okay, I'll give you the next clue. Uh, Eva Gabor was in it. Oh, my God. John Candy? Now, I'd already worked it out after Bob Newhart, but... Yeah. Uh, it was a film called The Rescuers Down Under. <laughs> of course it was, yes. Yeah, good one, yep. Yeah. Uh, what about this film? It was the... I'm guessing it's probably like a second or third week of release. Uh, total gross was 18116255 This week made just over $5 million, And it's a film that was directed by uh, John Lafayette. And the first build actor was Alex Vincent. And then the second build actor was Brad Dourif. Third build Child's, actor was Christina no, Child's Lise. Play. It's Child's it Play 2. Child's Play 2, yes, of course, by 1990. Okay. Yeah. Uh, also that week, number two was Rocky Five. But, you know, it's a ridiculous game and I can't get enough it's of it. It's a fun game. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's cool. And, which I, and I mentioned to you in that text that, my thing every week was to go to my school library who somehow got the variety in and I would <laughs> yep. study the the box office charts and just learn all about the box office charts and see which was the going up and going down and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, we're, we're, we're digressing in our podcast. Which is kind of fascinating. It's fascinating you were watching this and like reading this in high school considering that the printing press was still a bit of a dream at that point. <laughs> Ah, that's good. Yeah, I was a little surprised that you didn't do more ageist jokes when you're reviewing The Old Man. I had a bit of pencil and paper ready to tick off the number of times you had to go at my age. But no, you're absolutely right. It was um, the fact that I'm talking about Variety magazine. They don't sell it anymore. I'd anyway. just like to stress that I only make fun of your age and not older people generally. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, yeah. I got it. Mm. All right, play a sting. Sure. You were able to hear that? Like, that was fine. I heard, I yeah. heard that just fine. Yeah, yeah got sure. The, got the aid in. All right, moving ahead. The week ahead. Movies debuting on streaming as we head into the ninth hour of the podcast. My Little Pony: A New Generation is coming to Netflix from July eighteen. A young Earth pony named Sunny and her new unicorn friend Izzy explore their world and strive to restore harmony to Equestria. Good voice cast in this one: Vanessa Hudgens and James Marsden. I know you're a brony from way back. Um, dance so you'll enjoy My Little Pony A New Generation on Netflix then two films which look at Hollywood stardom The Day the Music Died comes to Paramount Plus on July 19 this um, is a documentary which looks at the impact of the iconic song American Pie interviews Don McLean and a whole lot of people associated with the release of that song and then on HBO Max from July 21 hopefully soon here in Australia is uh, director Ethan Hawke's film The Last Movie Stars this is a celebration of Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman, in which people like Scorsese and Sally Field uh, and Melanie Griffith are all interviewed about what it meant, uh, the stars Joanne Woodward and Paul Newman meant to their careers. So some good stuff coming to streaming. Yeah. 
That's it. I got, I got nothing for the week ahead because it is a very <laughs> quiet week streaming-wise. Fair enough. All right. Yeah. New, uh, the, the only thing I noticed coming up on the, the re- new or returning TV series is on the Disney Channel, a new 10-part, 30-minute series called All the Same or Not, which um, by all accounts has got a bit of a following on social media. And by me mentioning it, I can hashtag it and the kids will come and look at our channel. So there we go. Done. The kids are um, coming. And in special event screenings around the country, this is an interesting one. In, at the Mercury Theatre in Adelaide, they've got a, a series of programs called Harry Shearer Presents. It's been curated by the great Harry Shearer himself from The Simpsons and so many other great shows. Um, on Monday, the, yeah, well, exactly. Well, Spinal Tap, they're, they're showing. Um, he Front was line. to be in. He was to be in Adelaide for Guitar Fest, um, and he was going to present a live Q and A of Spinal Tap, but apparently he couldn't make the trip. And they'll be beaming him in by um, satellite to do a sort of a, a live Q and A up on the screen there. But on Monday the eighteenth, they're showing Doctor Strange Love. Uh, they're showing Galaxy Quest on nineteenth, Licorice Pizza on Wednesday the twentieth. These have all been specially selected by Harry Shearer himself. And then um, on Thursday the twenty-first, Spinal Tap with this beamed in Q and A. So if you're in Adelaide, get tickets from the Mercury Theatre, the great theatre there, um, to see Harry Shearer presents. No, not happy birthday. No, not that. Please, no, not happy birthday. July 17, 1998, The Mask of Zorro, starring Antonio Banderas, Catherine Zeta-Jones and Anthony Hopkins was released. Well done. On July 18, 1961, the first in-flight movie was shown on airline TWA. And for those who are interested, it was called By Love Possessed, a drama starring Lana Turner and Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., and I believe that the first TV show that was screened uh, thing was The Big Bang Theory and continues to be played every freaking flight you get on. <laughs> Sorry, it just feels like it's been available for that long. Sorry, yeah, I'm confused. It certainly does. Hey, uh, July 18, 2007, a show called Mad Men, never heard of it, uh, debuted on cable network AMC. Oh, wait a sec. No, it's only the greatest TV show ever made, Simon. Yeah, I knew that. I put that one in there for you. I know you're a fan. Then on July speak, 22nd, Speaking of the 19- greatest things ever made. It's what? Speaking of the greatest things ever made. Yeah, exactly. Plan 9 from Outer Space hit planet Earth on July 22nd, 1959. Edward's film has been called one of the worst films ever. It's not. It's just really bad, but there have been far worse movies. Trust me. Um, July 22nd, 1959. So I played the happy birthday thing instead of the this week in history string. I, I know I was going to let it slide, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, Shall we just slide birth- into birthdays? Happy birthday to Heather Lagenkamp. Do you know the name? She was. Uh oh, I've forgotten her name. Uh, she was the lead in the original A Nightmare on Elm Street. She was born July 17, 1964. I believe she also came back for at least the uh, new Nightmare film. Yeah, she was around for a few of them. Mm. Uh, July 19, 1976, Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, not a fan, not a fan. July 20, 1938, the beautiful Natalie Wood, the late great Natalie Wood, God rest her soul, she was born. What day was she murdered by popular actors? Oh, boy, don't say any names. We'll get letters. July 21st, 1989, uh, Juno Temple, who has impressed the world in The Offer. 
Oh, wow, yeah, totally forgot she was in that. But, of course, he's making a lot of name for herself in Ted Lasso as well. Never heard of which it. Is, which is a big deal. And the aforementioned Selena Gomez. Gosh, she's having a birthday, and they wouldn't even give her an Emmy nomination for that. July 22, 1992. She's such a wee young lass, is Selena Gomez. Happy birthday. She's almost 30. <sighs> yeah, she has been around for a long time, hasn't in she? In fact... Yeah, like oh, in a week's time, she's 30 years old. Hardly a wee lass anymore, Simon. She's wow. a grown woman. God. Instead, you're infantilizing her. <laughs> I remember as the, the Disney kid, I grew up with my daughters watching her on the Disney Channel. To think of her as 30, just, uh Your daughters are young, thing. vivacious women now themselves, Simon. Yeah. And I've never actually well. met them. I don't really know. <laughs> I barely know them at all. Yeah. Um, let's move on and let's sign off. Yeah, sure. Let's do that. Uh, folks, you've been listening to Screen Watching for seven, 18 hours now. Uh, nice. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at the Dan Barrett. So you can start your day with my free newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching at alwaysbewatching.com. It's got the big stories in TV, streaming, and of course, film. And on Fridays, we've got the Always Be Streaming newsletter, which erroneously mentioned this week that the Grey Man was out this week as opposed to the next week when it's actually out. And otherwise, it usually recounts the big shows and movies that launched that week. It's a hell of a newsletter. I'm on the Twitter at Simon R. Foster One. I do my writings at screen-space.net. I do most of the postings on the Screen Watching podcast page, although I haven't done that for a while. I've got to get back to that. Um, do go to the Screen Watching YouTube channel. A couple of really interesting interviews going up this week and some fresh trailers as well. And we started announcing some of the titles for the Sydney Science Fiction Film Festival through the week. So I'll be bringing everyone up to date via this platform in the weeks ahead. Okay. Simon, mm. that's the end of the podcast. We can get Thank out of here. Christ. I know. This has been going on longer than religion. Okay. Well, our community <sighs> service requirements are done with for the week, so we can shake our hands <laughs> and get out of here. Folks, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next week with more screen watching. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.